We are back in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and we'll remain here until we're done. Um, There'll be a a couple of pauses along the way for the missions conference and and Easter, but we'll we'll mainly remain here until probably the end of April. That's the plan currently. We'll be done with the Sermon on the Mount at that point. Uh, And then this summer, uh, we'll look at the life of Elijah uh, from the book of 1 Kings. Uh, So that's what's coming soon. Oddly enough, that, that really, even the study of the, the life of Elijah really helps us continue this idea of worship uh, uh, that we've been talking about in the month of January. Uh, but back to the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, the very end of chapter 5, uh, verses 38 through 48, uh, a sermon I've entitled, One of the Hardest Things to Do. Uh, forgiving somebody that's wronged you is hard. We all know this, don't we, to varying degrees probably in this room. Someone has wronged you deeply, perhaps, and you have needed or, pay, or perhaps still need to give, offer them forgiveness. Or maybe you've had to offer forgiveness as well. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from someone else. This is difficult, and yet Jesus tells us, on the one hand, you got to do it because <laughs> you're a follower of Christ. On the other hand, I think he also shows us And the rest of the Scripture certainly testifies to the fact you have been given such great forgiveness in Christ. And once you really understand that, the table, then can you then go and do likewise? You don't have the resources in and of yourself to naturally want to do that and to to then go and do it. But through Christ, you do have those resources because of the great forgiveness you have in Him. With that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask now that you would teach us from your word, Lord, that you would help us from this most difficult thing, to forgive. But remind us, Lord, today that you have forgiven us in Christ, and it's in his name we pray, amen. On June the 17th of 2015, just after 8 o'clock in the evening, Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and he took his seat at a Wednesday evening Bible study and prayer meeting. For nearly an hour, according to security camera footage, he appeared to participate in this study and prayer time. At just before 9 o'clock in the evening, he stands up, he unveils his 45 caliber handgun, and he opens fire, killing nine people. And then he walks out the door. This event was correctly labeled a hate crime. And yet what seems to be the indelible impression left by this event is actually one of forgiveness. Just 48 hours after this horrific event, Roof appears before a judge for his bond hearing, 
Also appearing in court that day were many of the relatives who had lost loved ones two days before. And what happened in the courtroom that day could not have been anticipated. In fact, I would argue it was supernatural. First up was a woman named Nadine Collier who lost her mother. He looks to Ruth and he says, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never be able to speak to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and may God have mercy on you. Relatives of the Emmanuel Church victims stood up one by one, and though not all of them offered forgiveness, many of them did. And they expressed it with deep compassion and care. As relatives expressed their hurt and forgiveness, Ruth appeared to be completely unmoved by any of it, saying nothing and expressing no emotions. Minor league baseball player Chris Singleton lost his mother that day, and though he was not in the courtroom, he was interviewed several days later. After seeing how the people of our church forgave, I hope people will see that this was not empty words. We meant it. Forgiveness is not a sign that you're weak. Forgiveness is difficult, and it's much more difficult than holding a grudge. It takes courage to forgive someone. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has been progressing from hard things to harder things to now the seemingly impossible things. Forgiving. He begins with the challenging things of lust and anger and divorce, and those are difficult, and and we need to understand them as we tried to in our study. And now he comes to, you must not retaliate, you must forgive, and you must not hate your enemies, even though they may have done something absolutely awful to you. The final two contrasts bring us to maybe the most challenging part of all this. Nowhere is the challenge in the sermon greater. Nowhere is the distinctiveness of us as Christians clearer than it is here. Nowhere is the need for the power of the Holy Spirit more obvious. Every single person in this room, as I argued a moment ago, knows this and its difficulty, although to varying degrees. When someone wrongs you, you want to pay them back. And not just in equal measure, you want them to pay. You want to crush them often. You want them to feel the way you do, and yet Jesus says that is not the way. That is not the way of grace. That's not the way of kindness. Indeed, that's not the way the Savior treated you. So three ways I want us to look at this passage. The first is retaliation. The second is vengeance. And the third is the love and grace of God. So number one is retaliation. This first point is the longest of the points because it requires the most contextual explanations here. Jesus uses four different illustrations, and they're sometimes odd to our ears, and so it demands a little bit more understanding for us before we can move forward, I think, with this principle. Jesus, all along the way in chapter 5, has been saying what? You have heard that it was said, but I say. It's not a, a Old Testament says this, but I say that. No, it's you've heard the rabbis explain the Old Testament law this way, and they were wrong, And I'm telling you the law means this, and that's what he does again here. So he correctly explains the law, and then he shows, often with illustrations, how you are to love other people because of this principle he lays out. Of all the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, again, this may be the most challenging. The excerpt from from the Old Testament law that the rabbis were considering came from the book of Exodus. Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments, and then the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy and and Leviticus are sort of an extrapolation of those commandments, even giving some case studies 
if this happens, here's what you ought to do, okay? And in Exodus chapter 21, it says this, if people are fighting and there's a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. And the Pharisees were taking that to mean this is how you may respond when someone personally offends you. And Jesus says, that's not what this is saying at all. This is instruction for the judges of Israel as they are giving out punishment for crimes. So it was given to the civil magistrate, as we may say, not to individuals. The instruction in in Exodus was not, here's how you can repay someone who wrongs you. This is, here, judges, this is how you correctly give out punishment. They were not teaching it that way. It was meant to limit or to restrain retaliation. It was only an eye for an eye, not a life for an eye. (laughs) You see the restraining there. And Exodus 21 helps us here. Deuteronomy chapter 19, I think, also makes it clear. This is is instruction to the leaders, not to the individuals. Now let's say this morning, Bobby was up here assisting me in worship. Let's just say, I for a moment, you know, I just had it with Bobby, okay? And I turn around and just punch him right in the face, and he loses his eyesight permanently, okay? The instruction here is not Bobby could then turn around and we could all watch him punch me in the face and me lose my eyesight. No. It's the law of what we call compensatory damages, okay? Bobby could file a lawsuit against me and, you know, I'd have to repay something that, quite frankly, is irreplaceable. It may be millions of dollars. I'd be on probation and I'd probably have to take some anger management classes. That's, that's, That's what we're talking about here. It doesn't say Bobby can repay me. It says here's what the courts can do. Okay. God's law was meant to prescribe just penalties and to restrict retaliation. But it was given to the courts, not to the individuals. Jesus gives that particular law. You do not repay. You do not retaliate. You are willing to take additional offense to yourself so as to love that person who has harmed you. We understand this in our society, though, don't we? We are a litigious society. Someone looks at you the wrong way, and we determine that ought to be a lawsuit. Compensatory damages. That's not what we want. We want the other person to be crushed, right? And I think there's an admonition here. Another word that's sort of a a parenthesis in the sermon here, this passage has often been used to support the idea of pacifism or gun control laws, or civil rights issues. It's just not what this is talking about here. This is talking about the individual and the individual's response. The point to be made and emphasized is that this is the duties and functions of the state, not the retribution you may take upon another person. The difference is God-given functions between two servants. The state punishes the evildoer, The individual does not repay evil for evil, but overcomes evil with good. Now, some of you in your particular professions may feel a tension here. Maybe you're a lawyer or a judge, and professionally, you you dole out punishment all the time. You punish the wrongdoer, but in your individual life, that's not what you do. You, You overcome evil with good. It doesn't mean 
If someone breaks into your house this evening that you can't do anything, no, you most certainly can. You can protect your family. You can call the police and say, take this jerk away and put him in in jail. The scribes and Pharisees were extending a principle of retribution, taking it from the law court where it belonged, and putting it into personal relationships where it did not. I hope that makes sense. I know I've sort of belabored that point, but I wanted it to be clear. Jesus is not denying the reality of evil. He's not condoning anyone's evil behavior. He's telling you how you may respond. And then he gives four examples. The first is turn the other cheek. When someone smacks you on the right cheek, you turn to him the other also. Don't get caught up in the physical action here. Let it resonate with you what's the intention. It's when someone backhands you. It's an insult is really in view here, not so much the physical contact made with your face. Someone in that culture that smacked you on the right, they're right-handed, so they're smacking you on the right cheek, this is the highest insult that you could pay to someone. And Jesus is saying, don't hit them back, accept the insult, and don't demand that they apologize, deal with it. Because you don't care what they think anyway. Your, your identity, your whole personhood is secure in Jesus. You don't need them to come and to affirm you in any way. It's this insult and slander, we might say. We're not told to seek revenge or retaliation. In fact, God says himself, vengeance is mine. You won't do it right, God says. Leave that up to me. I will handle that in its correct measure either in this life or in the life to come. Is Jesus suggesting that Christians deliberately put themselves in harm's way? No, he isn't. He is suggesting a principle here. Okay? These are illustrations. These are not exhaustive situations. They're illustrating principles. He's reminding his disciples in this figurative way, don't stand on your rights. Yes, you have a right to take that person to court who defamed you and insulted you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Extend to them something different than they have extended to you. Is anyone going to be won to the kingdom of God by your retaliation? Or, Or should you do exactly what Jesus did when he was insulted, when he was mocked, when he had a crown of thorns, when he had lashes and punches and more? He could have called down angels. He could have immediately paid them back for what they had done, and yet he didn't. In his infinite glory and self-control, he held his peace, and that has been for the benefit of all of us who know him by faith. The second illustration Jesus gives is giving away your tunic. Okay, here's the situation. Someone has sued you for your tunic, which was a very important thing in that day. It was not only your clothing, it often was your covers at night when you went to bed, If someone sues you for this, don't just give them the tunic, give them your coat as well. Don't deny this person what they are after. Mike Ross, who was the uh, interim pastor here before I came, he tells a story of when he was a pastor in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. He had a bunch of pine trees in his yard. Two of those pine trees, however, were causing a problem with his neighbor. Because anytime the wind blew really hard, some of the sap from the pine tree was being blown off the tree and onto his neighbor's car, and it was damaging the paint on the car. Mike didn't really know what to do, but finally his neighbor one day had had enough. And so Mike had just gotten done cutting the grass, and he goes inside to relax a little bit, and here comes his neighbor banging on the door. 
either you cut these trees down now or I'm suing you. Mike's like, well, you know, we don't need to do that. How about this? Okay, th- these two are causing the problem. I'll cut down one and you cut down the other. We'll, we'll call it even. Absolutely not. I'm calling my lawyer. The guy wouldn't hear any, any of it. Two weeks later, in 1989, Hurricane Hugo rolled into town in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And it destroyed every single tree in Mike Ross's yard except for two. <laughs> standing just as tall and pristine as they ever had. Mike calls his insurance adjuster to sort of figure out how much they're going to pay to clean up the yard. They'll pay for everything except for those two trees. Mike said, you know what, just go ahead and cut them down. Well, you're going to have to pay for them. I know, I know, I know. His neighbor finds out what he had done, and he came over to his house the next day and said, you know what, Mike, I heard about what you're doing. I'll cut down one of the trees. And their neighborly relationship improved from that point forward. We are thirdly to go the extra mile. A Roman army had the right to force the Jewish people to walk a mile with them, to carry their stuff. It's what's happening in Mark chapter 15 when Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross for a little bit. They're invoking this law here. It was humiliating to the Jewish people to have to do this. They didn't want to because it was a reminder that they were a subjugated people. And Jesus is saying, if you're forced to walk one mile, walk a second mile. Why in the world Would Jesus expect that of them? Well, imagine what the Roman soldier who you're doing this for might ask you. Why are you doing this? You you can stop here. Why are you continuing on further? Because you're declaring to that Roman soldier, I live underneath another king. I know I'm only supposed to do this, but I'm going to do more. And it's an opportunity, perhaps, to tell that person more about who your God is and how you live and love to serve him and no one else. Going the extra mile. The Christian does the unexpected because the grace makes him or her do this and desire this to love and serve others rather than just saying, no, it's my right to stop here and I'll go no further. Lastly, we give to those who beg and borrow. This was not a legal duty for the disciples in this day. It was a, it was a kindness, of course. And so Jesus is encouraging them and us to give to people who have need and to not let your giving die the death of a thousand qualifications. Do they really need it? What are they going to do when I give this to them? They're just going to squander it. They're not going to use it for the right thing. No, you give out of your graciousness. You give out of your abundance to the person that has need. Overcome evil with good, Jesus says. Overcome revenge with grace. Overcome hate with love. If our conclusion at this point is that this teaching is just simply impossible or even ridiculous, we're wrong. What Jesus says here is possible, though difficult. What he teaches here is actually beautiful. It's how God loves us, and as he concludes this whole section, he expects us to do the same, to not retaliate to not give what's deserved, but to give what's needed. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Now, that's a description, of course, of Christ's love for us, and yet, can we mimic that? Yes, we can. Where the sin, offense, and insult abounded in you, the graciousness and kindness from you abounded all the more. That is the response. Secondly, there is vengeance. You know, there's nothing as natural 
and sinful as loving only those who love you and hating those who don't love you. Yet this is not what Christ calls us to do. The Pharisees were saying, I'm to love my neighbor. Well, that must mean the opposite is true. I can hate my enemies. That's not what the law meant at all. And then they began to say, well, who then really is my neighbor? So, you know, what's, in other words, what's the bare minimum requirement here? I really don't have that many neighbors, surely, so I only have to love these handful of people. Jesus is saying, no, you need a total reorientation, as he does, of course, with the story of the Good Samaritan, as to who your neighbor really is. God's Word had already taught them to love their neighbor. That's Leviticus 19. He had told them to give food to the hungry and and water to the thirsty, regardless of who they are. That's Proverbs 25. It's not just love the people that 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 love you back. The Gentiles do that. Everybody does that. You're nice to the people that are nice to you. So if that's all you're doing, of what real difference are you? It is true that you're to love your neighbor, but the law is intended to restrain here not to give justification to treat someone wrong, which is what the rabbis were teaching. It is a cutting question, and it was meant to be, for the disciples and for us. What are you doing more than others? (laughs) That's some self-reflection that's quite unpleasant, isn't it? Do I really treat people any differently than unbelievers do? Or do I just, I'm nice to the people that are nice to me, and I'm mean to the people that aren't. Everybody does that. So you're not doing anything unusual, he's suggesting here. There's really only one basis how we're ever going to love people who hate us and our enemies is if we are first grounded in this, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. If I do that, then I can now really love my neighbor as myself. Who is my neighbor? That's that's the question that they're trying to get at. The law says nothing about strangers or enemies. Love's requirement was the same whether the recipient was Jew or not, whether the recipient was someone you happen to like or not. Another little interjection parenthesis in the sermon, because I would imagine this sort of question might come up in your mind. Well, what do we do with the imprecatory Psalms? That seems quite obvious that we can hate people and and even more so pronounce curses upon them. And yet we've got to understand the imprecatory psalms for a minute. If you're not familiar with that term, there are certain psalms that are imprecations. They are curses upon people. But if you read them carefully and closely, it's not an individual cursing another individual. It's not, I don't like you and now I'm going to pray this curse upon you. No, It was God's people, yes, pronouncing imprecations upon God's enemies, not their personal enemies. It wasn't, here, here's some prayers that you can pray for the destruction of the people you don't like or that were mean to you in your life. Not what they're about. Well, what do we do about God commanding the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites? Again, it's not a command to an individual against another. It's a command... Israel, the instrument of God's justice and judgment carried out on another group of people, okay? There's not a one-to-one comparison here is my point. Yes, there is such a thing as righteous anger, but even righteous anger is not motivated by vindictiveness. It's not motivated by spite. 
it's actually motivated by God's glory and desire to honor Him. End of parenthesis. So, what is a neighbor, or who is our neighbor? Your neighbor is everywhere because your neighbor is everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to go drive to California this afternoon and express your love for a neighbor who might happen to be there. That's not how we're to think of it. Your neighbor are the people that God puts in your path on a daily basis. It's the person that you see at the gym all the time. It's the person that you, that you work with, right? These are your neighbors. These are the people that you care for and are to care for. It's your fellow church members. It is your, maybe your literal neighbor, the people that live right next door to you. It's someone of a different race. It's someone of a different religion. It's someone of a different party affiliation. It's someone of a different lifestyle altogether. They are your neighbor. You do not have a right to mistreat them. You have a command to love and care for them. What is an enemy? This is an uncomfortable conversation, but one I think we ought to have. To deny the fact that you have personal enemies would be unwise, because you do. You have people, if I can state it just very candidly, you have someone or someones from your past that hate your guts. They do. You mistreated them. There was a misunderstanding that exploded. I have people in my past that I do not like. And when I think about their face, it makes me mad. I bet you have the same. It's okay to acknowledge that. But what do we do with it? We don't let that fester. We don't desire to retaliate. We don't think ill will of them. But it's okay to acknowledge that exists. And yet we do not hate them. You know, we have a lot of bad isms in our day. Secular humanism is evil. It is. Atheism is evil, and it leads to hopelessness, if rightly understood. Other religions are evil by the very reason that they do not worship the one true God. Communism is evil, and it ruins people's lives. Unbridled materialism and greed is also evil. But the individual standing in front of you who happens to subscribe to those isms is not someone that you can hate. It's not someone that you can mistreat. You can hate what they believe, and you can hate the, 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 the things that it makes them worship, but not them. They need the grace and mercy of Christ just as much as you do. And you received it, and now your desire is to stand next to them and with them and plead on their behalf to your Heavenly Father, not to hate them. It could be an unbelieving coworker that gives you a hard time for what you believe. It could be an unbelieving family member whose sinful lifestyle is out of accord with the Bible, and they take their frustrations out on you because they know the way you think about their lifestyle. It could be a friend who calls himself a Christian and yet only seems to be hostile towards Christians in the church. It could be a friend whose Christianity is so wrapped up in his or her own politics that you wonder if they love Jesus at all, or just whether or not the right person is elected, and they're frustrated at you because you don't take this as seriously as they do. Do you love them? Do you care for them? Are you reminded of Romans chapter 5 that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you? While you wanted nothing to do with him, while you hated him in every way, that's when he went to the cross. And do we then seek to love others in the same way? Maybe your love and care for them will harden their heart. It might. 
Or maybe your love and care for them was the exact God-ordained thing to turn them from death into life. And that is what we hope in. And so we pray for them. We plead with God for them. It may seem impossible to us, but nothing is impossible with God. Finally, it's the love and grace of God. We've talked about that's been sprinkled throughout these first couple of points. Now let's focus on it specifically. This is the only way that Christian community can last because we're all going to offend one another. You have offended perhaps someone in this room before, and if the first thing on our mind is retaliation and vindictiveness, then Westminster Presbyterian Church is going to crumble away. We have got to be people that forgive. We've got to be people that say, that was an insult, that hurt me, I am going to respond truly with grace and kindness in return. I I don't need someone to validate me. I don't find my hope in the opinion of other people. I find it in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He says about me. That's a game changer. If we're not willing to go the way of Christ and forbear and absorb and express patience, then we're not willing to walk in the way of Christ. Where is your heart in relation to this today? Is it filled with love or is it filled with the poison of bitterness? If it's filled with bitterness, then you're never going to be able, and if it's filled with bitterness, you will never be able to extract that in your own strength. I've quoted Ken Sandy's book, Peacemaker, several times. And the two times in the past I have given you this quote, there has been laughter in the congregation. I can assure you, I did not mean to be funny. This is actually a very serious quotation that I think we ought to take seriously. Bitterness is the poison you drink, hoping that somebody else will die. Bitterness makes you suffer. It doesn't do anything to the person that it's intended to be directed to. Jesus is saying, release yourself of this, not just for the sake of the other person, but actually for the sake of your own soul, because it's a poison that you're ingesting. You need the grace of Christ to be at work in you. Plead with Him that it would be. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Jesus is calling people to love both those who are in a position to reward you and who are in a position not to reward you, who can give nothing to you in return, who may not even respond positively to it. Do you remember the story of Jonah? You remember the story of Jonah that's the illustration of what not to do in such situations? God commands him to go to Nineveh. He does not want to, and so he goes in the opposite direction. He's thrown off the boat, he's swallowed by a fish, and it took that for him to say, okay, I got it, all right, I'm gonna, we're going to go the right way this time, and he does, and he preaches repentance to Nineveh, but even after he does exactly what he's supposed to do, he sits atop a mountain looking down into Nineveh hoping that fire and brimstone are coming because he doesn't want them to repent. He wants revival for his own people. He does not want it for the Ninevites, the people that he hates. And quite frankly, he had pretty good reason to hate them because they had terrorized the Israelites. And what happens when the revival begins? What does Jonah say? Yes, God, thank you so much for doing this. That's not what he says. He says, I knew it. I knew that this was going to happen because you are a gracious God. 
You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And I knew if I preached this gospel to them that you, O Lord, would change their hearts. But I didn't want you to. I wanted them to pay. I wanted them to burn. We know that's the wrong response, and yet we can identify with that response. God, but God, if, I, if I'm kind to them and nice to them and extend the grace to them, they may change their heart and put their hope and trust in you, and I don't want them to do that. As awful as that sounds, that's not too far away from perhaps what we hope sometimes. But what was Jonah doing? He had just been shown that grace and mercy by God. He'd been marching in the wrong direction, and the Lord redirected his path and loved him by his grace, not because he earned it. And yet he was angry when he saw God to do that to other people. Oh, the wonderful takeaway. You didn't deserve it either. Extend that love and grace to people, and who knows what he will do. And we see this desire for anger and retaliation in our heart. We've got to run back to Christ again and say, God, I know this is not what you want. I know this is not how you want me to feel. Change me, O Lord. And this lasting question of, are you really different than any other pe- anyone else? Well, what about your heart? What about your heart today? Is it full of bitterness or is it full of what can only be described as the supernatural love of God in Christ? It's what made the people... In Charleston, South Carolina, be able to forgive a man who had just killed the ones that they loved. That it, only the love of Christ can do that. Only the love of Christ that is dwelling in you richly can forgive in such a way. And he's asking us to go and do likewise. This is what the gospel is about. Vengeance and revenge is unto the Lord. Leave it to him. He can handle these things. We respond to evil by overcoming it with good. If this is a deal breaker for you, I understand it's difficulty, but you're making a mistake. Don't walk away from the kingdom of God because of this particular issue, as difficult as it may be. And remind yourself with the words of Jesus. As he's on the cross, he has just been tortured, he's just been mocked in every way, he's standing there More insults are being hurled his way, and what does he do? He does not respond in kind. He prays for the very ones who are insulting him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know their right hand from their left, as God says to Jonah at the very end in chapter 4. People react and respond this way because they don't know their right hand from their left. They need the forgiveness of Christ. They need his grace just as you did. Plead with others unto that end and rejoice as you see them changed. This is difficult, Westminster, and yet once we are reminded what Christ has done, we are given the strength and the ability by His grace to go and do the same. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You. Thank You for this Word to us this morning. It is difficult, we, we acknowledge. Our, our weak and sinful self struggles deeply with it. And, O oh Lord, that you would help us not demand our rights, not demand to be told what we want to hear, but to always overcome evil with good, because indeed that's what you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
We come now to the Lord's table, a place where we can see the wonderful forgiveness of Christ. But let me begin by reading the words of institution from Matthew chapter 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. This is a meal that's about forgiveness. This is a meal about you not receiving what you had earned by your sin, but what you had earned by your sin was placed upon Jesus Christ, and all of your sin was washed clean. Not only that, it was removed from you. Not only that, Scripture tells us that it was forgotten altogether, and the righteousness of Christ earned by this sacrifice is now given unto you. Therefore, you can now go and do likewise. Remember today, Westminster, of the forgiveness that you have in Jesus. You committed those sins. He remembers them no more. Satan likes to remind you of those things. You know all of them. In fact, you know many more than he reminds you of. You're forgiven. You're forgiven in Christ. And what rejoicing we can do because of that. If you know of that forgiveness this morning, if you know Christ by faith, then this meal is, is for you. It is prepared for you. If you've never placed your hope and trust in Jesus, you've never made a public profession of faith, then we would ask that you would refrain from taking the elements this morning. The benefit is for those who come by faith, not those who come who are perfect, because that's nobody. It's those who come in faith. And if that doesn't describe you yet, refrain Talk to us as pastors if you'd like to know more so that you could come to the table at a later time. Parents, also, if your children have not yet made a public profession of faith, that they would refrain from the elements until they have done so. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for this bread representing your body, this cup representing your blood. We thank you, oh, Lord, for your perfect life and righteousness. We thank you for your atoning blood and death. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication may available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.